This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 604. You know, I, I think that one of the one of the byproducts maybe of, of the kind of SaaS migration is it, it feels to me that it's enabling me to do something I've been trying unsuccessfully to do for 20 years, which is to get the business to look past the end of the year. You know, when you switch your computer off on the 31st and you come back on the you know the 2nd of January, it's the same stuff in your mailbox. It's the same deals you're working on. You know, so trying to trying to use the, the whole kind of ARR snowball model into getting people to think further ahead. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Gordon Stewart, CFO of Unit 4. An ERP software developer specializing in applications for the professional services industry, Unit 4 has offices around the globe today, but with a strong European base. We recently caught up with Gordon as he sheltered in place from his home office in the UK when he shared his finance career journey, including a few not-so-traditional chapters we enjoyed hearing about. Our interview with Gordon Stewart begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking to Gordon Stewart, CFO of Unit 4. Gordon, welcome. Thanks, Jack. Pleasure to be with you today. Gordon, uh, we're going to begin where we always do, which is to ask our guests to look backwards for us and share with us some of those experiences they feel prepared them for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, I've got, I've got quite a long way to look back on, uh, on that journey that I've been on. Um, I, I think I think a natural curiosity is the thing that's prepared me for almost everything that I've faced in my career. Uh, and it's been, you know, it's been a a jump from one thing to another through many different, um, through many decades, I guess. I mean, I, I started my life as a steelmaker in Scotland, which is not your kind of typical entry into the world of finance. Um, I, I, I grew there after uh, university uh, where I'd studied metallurgy. Um, 
and then and then ended up going through the kind of what in the UK certainly is a relatively standard training with uh, Price Waterhouse doing audit. From audit, I went to um, the oil industry briefly. That gave me a kind of different exposure to a different set of, uh, I guess, operational and finance parameters. Okay, just a second here. You were in steel making. Yep. Then you became an auditor. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, but was steel making sort of the local a local industry? Uh, yeah, well, it was at the time, not anymore. Unfortunately, I mean the yeah, I mean Scotland was built in steel and shipmaking. Um, and uh, I, I worked. Uh, I worked for British Steel back in the the mid nineteen eighties. Uh, as I say, I'd done a metallurgy degree at university. British Steel sponsored me, uh, and then I worked for them. But that was at the time when the steel industry was. Who studies steel, mate? Who studies that? <laughs> were, were you know really? Were you thinking of a career as an engineer, or who exactly? Where do you go from there? You know, I, I guess the way the way it works in, in many uh, many people's minds is you pick the things that you're good at doing at school. You know, I was I was a, I was strong in sciences and mathematics. Uh, went from there and didn't fancy doing a sort of pure chemistry or physics or engineering degree. And metallurgy kind of seemed a nice blend of everything, which it was. And you know, it was it was interesting. I, I learned a lot of stuff that I don't need to use now, like how to weld. <laughs> <laughs> Just maybe a another surprise chapter from the early part of your career is that after you were an auditor for a while, you go to. Uh, McKinsey and Company, the strategy firm. Now, how did that happen exactly? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, having, having gone down the audit route and worked through that, I figured that I would much rather be in the in, the, in more general business operations rather than being kind of specifically and very specifically in the world of audit. Um, I, think if, I think if it was nowadays, the, you know, the professional services firms have got much, much broader service capabilities and you know the things that i i went off to do at mckinsey i could probably have done you know in in any of the big four firms um you know i was attracted into mckinsey partly just because of the the opportunity that i saw it would present me for somebody that's naturally curious about business to build a, a better set of capabilities frameworks experiences connections uh to you know kind of further my career into what i wanted to do in the future you identified yourself as an SEM at that time. What is an SEM? Yeah, yeah that was, so a senior engagement manager. So I kind of went through the progression of, you know, you start as an associate, become an engagement manager, then a senior engagement manager. Um, and, you know, that, that's a, a kind of interesting transition point. You know, do you kind of get your head down and then stay at McKinsey forever? Or do you decide to, you want to kind of go off and, and do different things, work in different types of businesses? Uh, perhaps, you know, the, the cliche of actually, owning something rather than just being an advisor. Um, so I, I kind of got to the point which both from a personal and professional perspective, I felt I kind of got my learning experience from McKinsey, which was great. And probably probably the most transformational thing that I've done in um, in my career, really my time there, because it taught me it taught me an awful lot about both how to work with teams, how to work with um, you know, and very rapidly assimilate and understand businesses and business models, uh, and also how to communicate as well. I think that was probably one of the kind of the key learnings. Now, you uh, were those technology uh, engagements or no? Were they broader than that? And mostly, mostly kind of, I guess, strategy consulting in, in its broadest sense. I mean, I did everything from um, I did some M and A stuff mainly off the back of having been a finance professional before then. 
Um, I worked in some organizational design, pricing work, uh, integration, company transformation. Um, there was a lot, there was a lot, I think that, you know, I worked mostly in the airlines and telecoms industries at that time. And, you know, mid nineties when, when there was a lot of deregulation taking place, um, which was pretty interesting because you were dealing with industries that were fundamentally changing in structure from, you know, having a, having a kind of state owned incumbent. And the state-owned incumbent, some of whom I worked for, had to then start dealing with open competition and new entrants. Um, you know, so how do you adapt a, you know, a, a state-owned business to become much more nimble, much more commercial, and how it operated? And on the other side, I also worked for a number of new entrants to markets who were coming in as disruptors. So you know, a pretty pretty interesting set of circumstances that I think I think I've done done a few things for for my future career. One. I've kind of tended to want to be in businesses that were going through some form of change, you know, whether that was change in leadership, ownership, technology, markets, products, geographies, because I think, you know, as doing, doing the role I do, I think I can, I can often help guide our management teams in thinking about how to deal with what's new, you know, and, you know, clearly in the circumstances we find ourselves in just now, we're all having to learn about how to do things differently from the way that they've traditionally been done in the past. So I think, you know, that, that's, that was a, a super learning experience for me being, being through that in McKinsey. Yeah, I'll thank you for letting me ask you a few questions there. I think I just want to point out that, you know, you were 10, 15 years into your career and it's not the traditional finance leader path. In fact, I think if I said, did you know then you wanted to be a finance leader or a CFO, you'd probably have said, no, not, not exactly. So, uh, when when we have a, uh, a sort of a career journey like yours, I like to uh, ask a few more questions just because I want to I want to find out when you suddenly begin to feel like, yes, finance leadership would be satisfying or a goal for me as we go along. So I'll get quiet again and I'll let you pick up where we left off. You'll leave McKinsey, though, and I think this next chapter is also an interesting one and I'll let you share with us where you yes so so I you know I, I left I left McKinsey the, the back end of uh, 1998 when the, the the world of dot-com was starting to explode everywhere um, and I being kind of slightly risk averse I decided that rather than being in a startup I'd rather be in a, a sort of large corp so I, I joined Dell uh, originally as the sort of strategy director for Europe so it kind of gave me a good um, a good, a good run of, across the field of being able to kind of look at different things, do different things, um, and then you know having having made some connections and networking within within Dell after about a year and a half, um, I set up and ran the, uh, the 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 web hosting business in Europe. Um, it had been set up in the US, and we kind of copied the model, and, and I was uh, put put the team together, built the model, um, which was really kind of interesting. I mean, that's that's probably been my kind of main foray into trying to set something up uh, I had a template but we had to had to build it on the you know kind of this side of the Atlantic and it, it worked pretty well but timing was unfortunate in that just as we were kind of getting going we had the you know the kind of dot-com crash of, um, of sort of 2000 or so and uh, really that kind of reset priorities within Dell and it's at that point where my uh, my kind of CFO career kind of began um, as you say, I, I have never, I, I'd strangely never set out with, a, with a, an ambition to becoming a CFO, um, partly because I didn't think from you know, what I'd seen in my days of auditing, it looked particularly interesting. 
Uh, but I think you know a lot of time had passed, and I, I kind of realised that if you pick the right sort of business to be in, uh, that kind of lines up with with what you're interested in, and I think also most importantly, pick the right team that you want to work with as well. Then you know you can you can influence a lot of what happens in the business. Um, so I ended up joining a software business that was a, a UK listed company um, with a guy that had become the CEO who who I'd known from McKinsey, uh, you know, four or five years before. And, and I think the, the big thing that kind of hit me pretty quickly was um, having an impact is, is, you know, is very satisfying. I mean, I went into that business, which needed, you know, needed really a kind of fundamental rethink as to the role of finance. Um, and I was able to structure the team and, and really show the business, whether through, you know, metrics, um, performance reviews, how, how finance could engage to really kind of help them be more effective in, in what they were trying to achieve. Now, that was a software company in the early part of the 2000s. Mm. So the cloud really isn't a, a reality yet. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the web was a, the web was there, but we hadn't kind of quite got to SaaS. You know, it was it was still what, just a delivery model. It wasn't a service solution. Um, uh, platform so this is all really on premise yeah on, on premise but may have been may have been kind of delivered by the client would deliver either through their web uh web or through um or through kind of traditional on-prem models so that was you know that was a business that was in the kind of financial services sector really dealt with most of the the large global banks um business was pretty strong in in the uk and, and the us and we, you know, we, we'll kind of hit a pattern here where in, in the businesses I've been in, there were either businesses that needed to consolidate or be consolidated. Um, and we, uh, we sold that business in middle of 2004 to, to a U.S. company. Um, I stayed around for a little bit, but then kind of realized I was, I was, I was more ending up then as a sort of divisional type role. Or, and and you're having, having, having tasted power, I guess, as <laughs> the CFO. Um, I, I, I felt that that was, you know, that was much more where I wanted to be. I wanted to be kind of calling the shots. I wanted to be at the, you know, around the boardroom table helping to, to direct the business. So now a number of CFO roles followed. And I just want to point that out because I think this is, this chapter is where you really transformed yourself and uh, the balance of your career since has been as a, as a CFO. Yeah, well, well I mean, I went from Dell um, where I was doing the job running the web hosting business to be the CFO of the software company. Um, yeah, I went, I went straight into to be the CFO there, which was, you know, kind of an, in, you know, you mentioned earlier, I've had an interesting route. I guess the interesting route was I stopped doing accounting um, back when I left PW, Price Waterhouse, and, and qualified in, in the end of the 80s. And then the next accounting job I had was as a CFO. Um, and I, I, th I think that what that demonstrates is, you know, there's more than there's more than one way to become a CFO. Um, and, and I think it's that there's there's very kind of traditional routes where you kind of start working in a finance function, you move up the function, you become a divisional controller, you know, you maybe become the CFO of a subsidiary, and then you become the CFO of a you know an independent business. Um, I, I went a different route, which was kind of down the route of being in business. But with having a kind of you know a, a strong financial awareness and knowledge, 
Um, and hence the step into the CFO chair for me wasn't one that was, you know, overly daunting. There was a, there was a few things I hadn't done, you know, that maybe otherwise I, I would have done if, I, if I'd gone up through a straight kind of finance line reporting. Um, you know, I'd never really done investor relations, hadn't done an awful lot in treasury, um, hadn't done much in tax. But, you know, the, the, I've always thought you can always find people that know how to do those things to work for you, to help you do them. Um, you know, I, I have I have conversations with and have had over the years with a number of my colleagues, not just in, in finance functions, who've had this, um, you know, slight paranoia of always thinking that they need to be able to do the job of the people that work for them, which is which is not a view that I hold. You know, you, you can't know everything. Um, you know, what you've got to do as a leader is to surround yourself, uh, firstly, with people that, that know what they're doing, and secondly, with people that make you look good. Well, you are one of a number of guests who have uh, told us that. And uh, again, you know, to be a leader, you do not have to have done it all, uh, I guess, is the, the point that we see driven home all very often. And right now, we are finally going to ask you about Unit 4. Tell us about uh, this company. What does it do? And, and what are its offerings? Yeah, so we're, a, we're an enterprise software business. Uh, we're, we're actually 40 years old this year. So, you know, that, that's, we're not a startup. We've, we've, been, we've been around the block a few times. We've seen a few changes in our time. Um, before the internet. Before the internet, yeah. Uh, we, were, uh, we were listed in the Dutch Stock Exchange, um, taken private by Advent in 2014. Um, I joined the business in 2018. We are um, we're kind of in business for people. If you know, if you look at any of our branding, any of our material, that's what we talk about. And what that means is that we are a, we are people centric solution. We're focused on businesses where their economic unit of production is people. Uh, you know, so the, the the kind of key verticals that we focus on are public sector, higher education, uh, not for profit, and professional services organisations, which you know none of them really make anything. So, you know, they don't have factories with inventory planning or all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, if you look at, a, I was going to say a traditional software business like or a large software business like SAP, they're very much built around our manufacturing supply chain, uh, whereas we are built around people. Um, so the, the kind of the, the flexibility and the agility of our solutions to enable organizations to, to manage the people resources that they have is what's kind of central to our value add. And we have, you know, as well as having a kind of core back office ERP platform, we also have, you know, front end products like um, our FP&A offering, which helps companies run, uh, you know, dynamic forecasting and, and modeling, which particularly in the current environment, you know, your ability to run an integrated model to understand how different scenarios will play out in a world where, you know, we don't really know how anything's going to play out is pretty valuable. Um, similarly, we have a, a people engagement tool that really helps businesses. Um, you know, it, it, it moves away from the kind of traditional performance management cycles that everybody hates and often adds very little value to being a kind of real time, um, you know, feedback and learning tool. You know, so I've got on my, my phone an app and if I want to, it will prompt me and say, hey, you know, you haven't given Jack any feedback for a couple of weeks. Why don't you tell him something good? Or, you know, tell them that you're missing them and, you know, it'd be great to catch up. And so it, it just it helps drive that engagement. And again, particularly where businesses all of a sudden now have found out they've gone from having 
you know, five offices to 4,000 offices uh, in their in their employees' living rooms. Um, you know, it's a kind of good way to hold it, hold the kind of people centricity of the organization together. So tell us something about your arrival as you stepped into the role, having uh, been uh, a CFO for multiple different technology companies. You just shared with us sort of the unique focus of this one on professional services, really, I think. And uh, what, you know, what are your priorities as you step into the role? What is it sure. that you want to accomplish here? Yeah. Um, so this is the this is the fifth job that I've gone into as a CFO. So I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I've kind of got a game plan or a playbook for for what I do, but you know the, the first thing I like to do is kind of watch and listen. Um, you know, I, I've never I've never kind of held out that I know the answers to everything, um, and I don't. I think that the kind of key thing is to kind of take what you know and work out how you can adapt it to the situation you find yourself in. Um, you know, the, our, our business is um, pretty global. Uh, you know, the, the, we're, we're strong in Northern Europe, continental Europe, UK, uh, a growing, a fast growing business in North America and some stuff over in APAC as well. Um, and I think, I think it's probably similar to, to the other businesses where I've gone in as CFO. The, the organization as a whole hasn't really kind of seen the value of finance. You know, so I, I always like to kind of go in see what the finance function, see what the guys are doing, get a sense of what they think is important for the business and then, you know, spend time with the, the business leaders as well uh, and looking at what they do. I mean, we're, uh, we're not a professional services firm. We, we sell to professional services businesses, but, you know, we are, we're a software company. So, you know, we've got, we've got everything from how we go about doing our, our software engineering, product management, you know, go to market motions for sales, different sales channels. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the business. Um, but I think the, the, the thing that I've tried to always do is to is to kind of understand where where can where's finance most visible, where can it add the most value, and what are the points that it needs to kind of you know step its game up. Um, you know, you often find in in global businesses a matrix model. You know, so what are the strong axes on the on the matrix? Whereabouts you know do finance report hard line up through finance, or did they report? Um, do they report locally to local MDs? You know, and, and any model works, in it, but not in every, in, in every situation, in every scenario. You know, where, where the business needs to be, you know, have more kind of perhaps control around cost management, then it's much better for finance to kind of report through finance, I've found. Um, in, a, in a fast growing distributed business, then, you know, often being close to frontline management and being able to kind of be agile and available and there to make rapid sort of on-the-spot type decisions. I think, you know, I think that model sometimes works better. Um, I think the, the, the key, the other key thing that, uh, that I've tried to focus on is making sure there's a really strong FP&A function. You know, finance, finance as a kind of transaction processing model is kind of interesting. You know, you can, you can get more and more automated in everything you do, and I think that's where things are heading, um, and will continue to head. But I think the the FP&A piece, where you need to, you know, you need to apply judgment, insight, uh, interpretation, uh, and think of new ways to look at, you know, the, the, the results of the business. I've always, um, I've always kind of viewed that as being super important. 
Um, so you know, I'm, I'm in the process just now of, uh, of a finance transformation exercise that tackles this from both ends. One, in terms of um, uh, standardizing our process and data models to make sure that we can run the business consistently. Um, and at the same time, trying to kind of up the game of the, the FP&A team to, become, to be more relevant and to drive more insight and to be more supportive of, uh, of decision making. Um, you know, I, I guess as a, you know, as a, just as an example, when, when we put in our previous ERP platform, we had all kinds of localizations, all kinds of different process models, which then makes it really difficult to scale because, you know, you try and create a shared service function, but the shared service function is having to deal with, you know, a whole bunch of different silos. Uh, and we're trying to kind of flatten all that out to have everybody and every process run the same way um, around the business globally. Your team, is it pretty distributed today? Is it, uh, you know, is part of it in the UK, but most of it in uh, Europe or how, how is it? Well, I mean, today it's totally distributed. Everyone's sitting in their own house. <laughs> um, we have, uh, we have a, um, our, our, our traditional and still our kind of legal head offices in Holland, um, where, where notionally the, the, uh, the corporate accounting group sits. So all for the do statutory stuff, statutory accounting, tax, treasury, um, our, our shared services management sits there. Um, our shared service operations are actually in Poland. So that's where the biggest kind of hub of people are. Um, and then the FP&A team is, you know, somewhat disparate. There's a, there's a few of them sitting in uh, in Holland. There's a few of them in the UK. And then in each of our um, five regions, I've got our, our regional CFO. And the regional CFO is a kind of a bit of a it's a bit of a hybrid, really, between um, being responsible for financial stewardship for the region that they're in, being responsible for enacting our FP&A models. And business models um, for business partnering with the, uh, the president of that region and then also kind of reporting to me as being my eyes and ears out in the regions of you know feeding me back the stuff that the regional presidents don't or won't tell me um, and I think the other, the other the other thing that we're doing you know you, you mentioned the cloud earlier on in SAS we, we're we're on this transition axis to move from you know historically being a you know, a kind of on-prem business to starting our cloud journey probably six, seven years ago. Um, you know, at the moment we're probably twenty-five percent of our revenue will be will be cloud revenue, and what that's that's really requiring us to do, and particularly trying to get the the FP&A guys to lead in this one, is starting to to look at the metrics of the business as you'd look at a cloud business. You know, so it's much more about thinking about recurring revenue and the snowball models. And you know, lifetime value to cost of customer acquisition, retention rates, net re net revenue expansion, and you know, a lot of that narrative and dialogue is is not first nature to some of the operational people in our business. So having to kind of walk them through that and get them to understand that, because we we were finding, you know, we'd we'd be doing quarterly business reviews and we'd kind of have the FP&A deck, we'd get everyone to fill it out, we'd sit in the reviews and they'd start talking about nothing on the pack. You know, the guys would just be talking about how much they've done in terms of sales and what their, you know, what their gross margin was and 
what EBITDA looked like. And they're going, no, hold on, time out. You know, we need to talk about what's the recurring revenue build look like. You know, are we going to get to the ARR numbers for the end of the year? So that's been a kind of, you know, an education journey that we're taking the business through that, that finance are, you know, in part leading. Do you think uh, does the FP&A team have an appetite more for one than the other? Uh, <laughs> um, or is there a sense of excitement or energy around that yeah, uh, SaaS uh, revenue? Uh, yeah, th- there is because, you know, the, 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 the way in which we've, we're positioning our business and the way in which we're kind of trying to drive uh, in particular, innovation within our products, you know, lend themselves fully to to a SaaS world where continuous innovation and consumption is what customers are going to get, what they can, you know, sign up for. That they come in and every day the the application can do something new that it couldn't do, you know, the day before because we've got this continuous release cycle. Um, you know, and I, th- I think when you think about um, in everyday life how that kind of affects you, whether it's, you know, when you you get your your um, your kind of push notification from your iPad to upgrade to the latest version of iOS. You know, it just it kind of happens. Um, one of my friends has got a Tesla, and he goes out in the morning, puts switches the car on, the car now tells him it can do something that it couldn't do yesterday. And I think all that stuff's kind of pretty neat. Um, you know, it's, it's a it's a new model. I think also from a from a kind of economic business model just driving that higher level of stickiness of recurring revenue visibility. You know, we've, we've been, you know, touch with pretty fortunate so far in this, uh, in this kind of COVID-19 world that our overall, we're about 70% recurring revenue. You know, so we've got that good visibility of base. We've got that kind of cash flow the products that we, um, the products that we sell to our customers are, you know, pretty essential for those customers. I, I read an article at the weekend, I can't, I can't remember where it come from, uh, as to who, what was, who, who had better credit, a bank or a software company. And the argument was, well, you know, they're going to they're stop paying interest before they start paying for SaaS access to their ERP system. You know, so in terms of where you sit in the hierarchy of needs for a business, you know, having, having to, to run your applications is pretty key to running your business. Um, now, I'm not sure it's a, a legal argument I want to have with anyone, but uh, you know, just as a, as, a, as a mindset, I think it's kind of, it's, you know, it's interesting. So SaaS in, in our world is, is definitely really forward. Well, beyond SaaS, what about, um, are there other examples you could give about how you're uh, drawing attention to uh, a different metric? Yeah, well, so, I mean, we went through the, you know, kind of trying to come up with a sort of standard metrics that we want people to look at and and having a kind of a finite set of them um you know i, I think that the the, the it, one of the one of the byproducts maybe of, of the kind of SaaS migration is it, it feels to me that it's enabling me to do something i've been trying unsuccessfully to do for 20 years which is to get the business to look past the end of the year you know n- nothing nothing kind of drives me to distraction more than the kind of the the, the 31st of December is the is the end of the world as far as most people are concerned. And I, I, I kind of keep making the point and have always done that, you know, when you switch your computer off on the 31st and you come back on the you know, 2nd of January, it's the same stuff in your mailbox. It's the same deals you're working on. You know, so trying to, trying to use the, the whole kind of ARR snowball model into getting people to think further ahead in their planning. You know, we, we had a chat um, earlier this morning uh, about our budget process for 2021 
And I said, you know, really, we can start it now because we, we know in our three-year plan that for the opening position in 2021, what we want our cost run rate to look like and what we want our, our, the, our ARR for our recurring business to look like. So all we've got to do is plot the course from here to there, and then we're kind of, you know, then we interlock into the next year of our three-year plan. And, you know, we, we, can, we can work out now if we think the trajectory is kind of looking low or high, how do we intervene to, to drive that? So, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's helpful in getting people to think longer term and not just be in the, you know, what's today's sales number, what do I need to do to get to the end of the quarter? Um, and clearly, the, you know, one of the big pieces of that is what's the mix of our business look like? Because although we still, you know, SaaS is where, where we're going, we still have a, you know, a, a big on-prem business and, you know, some customers that are on-prem product users now want to keep being on-prem product users. So when they buy, you know, more volume or they, you know, buy new businesses that they kind of roll applications out to or we upsell them a new product, then they'll typically consume that on-prem. But that's got, that's got implications for how we look at the, the mix of our business, both the in-year results and how it positions us for going into you know, 2021 as well. You, you mentioned uh, more than once, of uh, course, COVID. And I just want to touch on it with you. To, I'm curious uh, whether the pandemic in some way has allowed you to help the organization look at the world differently uh, in a more strategic way that might be strategic for the company. And again, helping the organization look forward might be the, if there is such a thing, silver lining here. Yeah, totally. To totally. Um, you know, if, if it wasn't for the, you know, the kind of the, the health and wellness um, implications that this has had for, you know, the world as a whole, it's, it's been a pretty good jump start to, to move to a next, a next normal. Um, you know, folk, folk use the, the kind of phrase new normal. I, I, I don't really like that. I prefer next normal because, you know, there's going, to be, there's going to be more normals to come rather than, rather than the, not just the next one. Um, yeah, so, so it's enabled us to, to do a few things. Um, I mean, f first and foremost, our reaction to it was probably the same as, as most organizations, which was to think about the safety of our people first. Um, and, you know, we, we did a lot around that, making sure that we were following all the guidelines that that folk were, uh, you know, had safe environments to be in. That we were, secondly, we then went into the over-communicate mode, making sure that everybody understood what we were doing as a business and what we expected from them. Then we went for the, you know, the, 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 the customer intimacy model and making sure that our customers understood what we were doing as a business and that we were still there for them. So, you know, I, I think the, the, the kind of first positive that came out of it, if you like, was driving that greater customer, customer intimacy, you know, really getting and seeing the, the need to, to be out and engage with customers, to let them know that you're still there, you're still doing business, you're still there to support them. Um, and, you know, and clearly for the customers that we provide, you know, SaaS solutions for, making them feel comfortable that, that we had ongoing, you know, availability, we weren't going to have any issues. Uh, you know, just as we've talked uh, there, I've seen the kind of our weekly sea of green pop up, which is what's our availability look like. And, you know, for the first time, it's at 100% with no outages in the course of the last week. So, you know, that, that, that kind of coming into um, the, the situation was all about, you know, hunkering down, understanding what we could do. And um, we, we were quite fortunate in about, you know, eight or nine months ago, we we'd kind of, 
without selling an advert, moved to Microsoft Teams as our standard collaboration platform. So everyone was familiar with it. Um, as an organization, and you, you alluded it to earlier on, you know, we were quite dispersed in how we operate. So everyone was kind of okay with that. You know, it wasn't that we were used to having a thousand people in a building and all of a sudden we're all at home on our own. Uh, you know, so, so people people coped with that part. You know, once we'd, once we'd kind of got the fact pattern and lay the land sort of sorted, we then started, you know, doing all the things looking forward. And, you know, we managed to get people to kind of understand that there is a different business model we could be doing. You know, um, that maybe we don't need to travel as much as we have been. You know, maybe we can do our job effectively. Um, right before this call, I was on our extended leadership team call, which is the top 100 people in our business. Um, and, you know, some of the things people were saying, you know, we've worked out a really cool way to do remote demos of our software. And actually, some of them are much, much better than what we do when we're in person in the room with people. You know, um, so, you know, we've been able to kind of change stuff like that. I think from a, from a cost-based perspective, we've been able to get people to give up some of their kind of sacred cows and things. Oh, no, no, you can't change that. You know, we, we could never change that in our business. Um, and, you know, so we've got some of this, those out on the table for people. Uh, and I think it's also made us, you know, fundamentally review what's the purpose of our offices. You know, if we've we've run the business for the last eight weeks without being in an office, you know, so one, we've probably got too much office space. Uh, and secondly, what we use it for probably isn't really a good use of space. So, you know, we're, we're thinking much more um, as we come into the, the, the back to work planning phase, what do we want to use our offices for? And I think, you know, that, the, the logistics and complexity of, of this back to work piece is um, has been you know a pretty taxing problem I think and continues to be for many people. I mean I, I kind of think there's there's four fundamental aspects that we're we're planning around. One is you know the individual situation of each of our employees. You know so are they living at home with either vulnerable partners or parents perhaps or their key workers uh, their partners a key worker. You know. So they have to stay at home because that's the only way we, we can do that. Secondly, the whole kind of journey to work, particularly if you're in public transport and the risk of, you know, infection through that will get people concerned. And then when you get to the office, you know, we're faced with the deep clean of the office, the replacement of all the filters and AC, separation, separation of desks, availability of PPE, screening. And then the fourth bit, which is, and who else is going to be in the office? Because we can't, you know, we'll probably run it less than half capacity if we, if that was something we wanted to do. And the reasons that guys in my team have been giving me for going back to work is they miss the buzz of the office, they miss the kind of sales engagement. And my point to them is, yeah, but they might not come back. You know, they might have decided that working from home is much more effective. So, you know, it's pretty complicated. So we've kind of defaulted to a, you know, as you are situation. Let's just keep working at home and you know, will evolve what we think the model for workplace experience looks like to being one which is much more about collaboration and people being in to do things with other people as opposed to being in to sit in front of a computer or hammering a keyboard. So we're up to our finance strategic moment question, which I think you've already shared a few with us, to be honest. But this is where we ask finance leaders just to choose one during the course of uh, their career where they've had so many that they can illustrate for us. And it's where your lines of sight allowed you to see an opportunity or a risk 
and you responded to it, whether you pointed the organization in a different direction, whether you uh, maybe it was just your team, you avoided a risk of some kind. Uh, what what comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? So, so I, I joined the business um, and my first day there was the day that Lehman Brothers went bust. Um, and, and the business was, it was a recruitment process outsourcing business um, that was pretty exposed to the finance sector. And, you know, back to a comment I made earlier, you know, I, I didn't have and, did, and hadn't been involved a lot in treasury. But, you know, it was kind of, it was pretty clear to me that one of the implications, this was a private equity owned business as well. So it was kind of highly leveraged. One of the one of the kind of clear lines of sight that, that I had was that you know this could be bad news for cash. <laughs> uh, you know, our, our biggest customer at the time was um, <clears throat> one of the big U.S. banks, uh, probably represented about twenty five percent of turnover. Uh, and clearly, you know, the banks were going to have their own moments of crisis here. The hiring wasn't going to be top of their list. So, so I set about um, putting together a kind of SWAT team to really work. Uh, very intensely looking at kind of future modeling of cash flows to really understand where cash was going to go, what could we do to conserve cash. Um, and also uh, spent an awful lot of time getting super familiar with the banking documentations that we had, which is, you know, that, you know, when asked or when I said I didn't want to be a CFO, that was one of the reasons I didn't want to be a CFO. But, uh, you know, from both the, the, and the impact in the business was we were able to kind of steer the business pretty well um, through a long period of, 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 of challenge. Uh, and interestingly, where, where, it, where it got really tough was when the recovery started. Because, you know, when the recovery started, all of a sudden we ended up in a kind of working capital crunch. But we'd seen it coming and we kind of knew what we needed to do to position ourselves, to work with the banks, to kind of see ourselves through the through the period. And I think, um, you know, that was, it wasn't one of those kind of great, you know, high five, what a fantastic day we've had, but it was, it was a real grind. But I think had we not done it, then, you know, the, 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 the ongoing viability of the business could have been, you know, severely disrupted. But um, that, that, that's, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's my proudest moment in finance, but, you know, it's certainly one of the ones that I think has had a such a, a, a huge impact that, you know, people around the business probably didn't really see because it meant just we kept going and we didn't run out of cash. When we come back, Gordon Stewart enters the mentoring round after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. 
So we're entering the mentoring round with Gordon Stewart. And our first question is to ask him to look back for us uh, once more and see if he can think about that first week, that first month he held a CFO role. So he has to go back a few tours of duty. Uh, But when you first stepped into the CFO office for the first time, what is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you? And again, the idea is to all the responsibilities that suddenly fell on your shoulders as the finance leader in that role. What is it that you wish someone had told you about this role? You know, it's okay. It's okay to ask about things that you, you don't know. I mean, that's, you know, to, to this day, I, I um, if I don't know something, I'm quite happy to say, I don't know this. Um, you know, because you, you, if, if you go the other route, you end up in a hole. Um, and I think, you know, when I started, there was loads of things that I didn't know, and I was I was probably too cautious in just not putting my hand up and saying, "Look, I I really don't know. I haven't done this before, but I'll go and find out how to do it." You know, there's there's always there's always plenty of people around you that c- that can help you out, uh, whether they're in the business or people in your network or just some of the advisors you work with. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned, this was the f- my first CFO role was stepping in to be the CFO of a listed company where I hadn't dealt with, you know, the, the financial regulatory authorities with the city explicitly with shareholders or analysts. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I was, I was confident enough in my own abilities to say to people, I don't know how to do this. Not, maybe not quite as bluntly as that, but, you know, I made it clear there were some gaps in, in my kind of understanding and capability and, and everyone was like, yeah, that's fine, but that's, you know, that's a learnable skill. Um, so that, 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 that to me is the kind of real thing, you know, don't, don't pretend you know something you don't, you know, always, always just say, uh, I'll need to go and check or I need to get somebody to help me do this. We now ask you to reflect a little bit on your personal side. If there's a habit or part of your routine, a routine that you have that you think in some ways has contributed to your professional success. Anything that you do personally? Um, you know, I kind of mentioned that I, I, I try and I try and get to understand the business, and I try and talk to a lot of people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a CFO that wants to sit in an office and look at you know financial statements all day long. I like being out to understand the business. Um, you know, what one of the challenges at the moment in in this environment is preserving that connectivity. You know, it's kind of easy to do it with the people that I work with all the time. And, you know, it's easy to do it with my, you know, the kind of my colleagues and our executive team because we have meetings where we meet. Uh, what, what it's harder to do is the, the kind of random interactions that you have with people. And I kind of, I'm sort of missing that a little bit. You know, the guy you bump into um, at the coffee machine that's got nothing to do with what you do in your day job. You would have no reason to talk to him other than the fact that he's a colleague and he tells you something and you think, we should be on this, you know, that's important. Um, you know, so, so I kind of like to try and, and make sure that I'm, I'm kind of visible and in touch with people around the organization. Um, and I think, I think the other thing that I've always kind of aspired to do is treat everyone like a peer. You know, organizations have hierarchy for, you know, for reasons, you know, principally to kind of create structures that you can make decisions on. But, but as dealing with people as individuals and treating them as, you know, kind of fellow humans to me is, uh, you know, is, 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 is missed by a lot of people. 
you know, people can think just because they're in a hierarchy that they need to either defer to their their bosses or they need to kind of you know beat up hard on their uh, on their staff. But you know, I, I've I've found that it works so much better if you just treat everyone um, as a peer. And I, th I think you know, back to something we were saying earlier, I, th I think that kind of goes back to my experience of working at McKinsey, where you know, there, there was no hierarchy for good ideas. You know, if people contributed, then you know everyone contributed. And sure, you need to have a structure to to run the business, but it doesn't mean you treat people any differently. What is there a book you'd recommend? Is there something that uh, a book that's influenced your thinking in some way in recent years, or something that comes to mind when I ask for a book? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I was kind of anticipating that question, um, and I think uh, I think my my answer to that is. There's so much information there that I kind of tend to graze on stuff. You know, I, 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 I can't remember the last time I actually read a business book from the beginning to the end. You know, I, I, think, I think that's as much to do with my impatience, perhaps, as, as anything else. Um, you know, I, I think the thing I find useful with business books is they can often give you a framework or a way of expressing something. Um, you know, as a, as a kind of minute example of that, you know, I, so I sit on a board as a non-exec director as well as doing my, doing my day job. And um, I was reading an article and it talked about um, um, optimism bias, which is just a kind of great, I mean, it's not a kind of you know, difficult phrase, you know, but optimism bias. And I was talking about how as, a, how as an executive, you're, you, you always tend to want to believe in the, in the better outcome that you might see happening whereas when you sit as a non-exec you're kind of going the other way on it and it talked about this optimism bias that as a non-exec you have to guard against in management teams you know they're always kind of gung-ho they're always trying to help, trying to prove that they'll be able to kind of do everything they want to do and you know that, that's just an example of you know something that the phrase kind of stuck with me the, the, the other thing and I'm, I'm not sure this whether this came there's probably a book about this um and maybe it's back to the other question about a kind of you know a defining moment. Um, you know, I, I've become a, a, a massive believer in knowing what the fire drill looks like. You know, so <laughs> so you know we have we have fire drills in our office. You know, the, the bell goes off, everyone knows. You kind of put your jacket on, you pick up your phone and your wallet, and you go outside. And and you know you can apply that to to business as well because when the when the bell goes, you know how to react. I think far too often. You know, in the past, I've been in situations where something bad happens and no one's got a clue what to do. So they form a working party and then they have some steering groups and then they have some committees. And before you know it, you know, a month's elapsed and you haven't solved or addressed what the problem is. So knowing, knowing how to react when the bell goes is super important. And, you know, uh, you know, we, I've tried to put this into our kind of annual planning cycle. So, you know, we're put, we've got a big push to be, you know, big in North America, here's our growth targets. What happens at the end of Q1 if we've missed the target? Do we then all sit around and work out what we're gonna do or do we decide now what we're gonna, gonna go, going to go and do? And I think, I think that's something that, you know, I, I, would, I, would, I would encourage everybody to at least have a mental model of, of what, it, what does the fire drill look like when, when, the, when the problem fires. <laughs> great, great insight, thank you. We're up to our final question where I get to, ask you to look forward finally for us and what are your priorities over the next 12 months as a finance leader what are those priorities over the next 12 months 
I think it's a pretty interesting 12 months that we're looking at. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably answer this question differently than I would at any other point in my career, which is, you know, we're, we're obviously facing, uh, you know, a kind of reset on business models. Um, and I think my job at the moment is about guiding the business and what that new business model looks like. And in particular, you know, how do, how do, we, how do we conserve and protect the savings that we've made in our business this year as we go into next year in a way where we either decide to, you know, save them from the point of view of value creation or how do we kind of look at rebalancing our investment of what, what do we now think the priority areas are? You know, th this kind of pause or hiatus or whatever we've had for the last two months has really helped us to, to just sort of think about how can we do things differently? How can we kind of really accelerate getting from, you know, where we are to where we want to be? Uh, and, you know, I think in, in some parts of our three-year plan, we've probably taken a year or so out of the timeline that we thought we were going to have to go through to get there because it's just made us realize that some of the stuff was, was less relevant than it might have been. And I think also it's accelerated um, customers' expectations of what we will be doing as a business. So it enable us to have those discussions. So, you know, for the next 12 months for me, it's about, you know, navigating our, our, uh, our course, looking at how we, we rebalance some of our priorities and in our investment areas um, and make sure that we kind of we accelerate what we were previously trying to do. Gordon Stewart, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks very much, Jack. It's been great talking to you today and uh, hope it's been insightful. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.